Hey, before we get started, we wanted to ask you, our listeners, for your feedback for our upcoming Season 3 retrospective episode. We're asking for submissions, and you can write in or record a short audio blurb telling us about your favorite moment in the third season of Northern Exposure. We'll give you a shout-out or play a recording on air when we discuss Season 3 as a whole. Send your submissions to the email address northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And thanks again for listening to the show and writing in. And now, back to your regular broadcast. Ed, do you honestly believe in ghosts? Oh, sure. Really? Come on. Think of all, all the billions of people who've died in the world. If ghosts existed, it'd be gridlocked. They'd be everywhere. Well, they are. They are. Ghosts are everywhere. Yeah, you know, some are just louder than others. Like when they have unfinished business. Wait a minute. What do you mean, unfinished business? Well, you know, suicide. Condemned to haunt the place where he took his life with his own hand. Of course, Jack could be trying to warn you. Warn me? Yeah, but you have to ask yourself, Dr. Fleischman, why now? And why you? Why are you hearing from Jack now? Welcome to the Northern Overexposure podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about the 1990s CBS uh, series, Northern Exposure. My name is Lee. I've seen the show a number of times, and I'm always joined by my co-host, Charles. Hi, hello, bienvenido. (laughs) I have never seen the show before. And I'm looking at it with fresh eyes. And the point of our show is to overanalyze every single episode, pick up any little neat tidbits that passed over and give off trivia information. Yeah. And uh, also every episode of our podcast, we introduce the show to someone who has never seen it before and sort of get the outsider perspective. You know, Charles, this is your first time watching this episode, but uh, we want to find someone who has never seen a single episode and sort of get their remarks. You know, does this show still hold up in 2020? Yeah, I would say that for today's episode, Lost and Found, this is probably the most northern exposure-ish episode we've gotten in a while. Like, I feel like it has the uh, je ne sais quoi of <laughs> what this entire television series is trying to do. You know, I think that's a pretty good assessment because... We've had some really great episodes uh, leading up to this one, but all of those episodes are very, they're very standout. You know, they're very unique. They're some of the best episodes, but they don't really feel like that. uh, You said je ne sais quoi, like that sort of signature, you know, the the recipe for a normal episode. Um, But yeah, this one, this one's uh, back in the comfort zone, I think. Yeah, yeah. Lots of plot lines that have plot lines of their own mm-hmm. and it just keeps bleeding in and it's not like a very simple A plot, B plot, C plot. Like you have a lot of different elements working together, lots of gears grinding. And I really liked it. Just, you know, off the bat, I just wanted to say that this episode is really up there for me. Oh, great. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, I This was one that you know, I said before, like the in these episodes leading up to this one, they're very memorable because they're very standout. You know, there's the one with the trebuchet, there's the one uh, with voting. You know, and this one was kind of hard for me to remember just from the title, and I found that I remembered most the plot line with Maurice and his uh, commanding officer. 
But um, yeah, this is a this is a good episode. It's not one that's stuck in my memory necessarily, but um, that's great that this is one of your one of your favorites or one of a better one, I guess. Yeah, should we get into it? Yeah, where should we start with this? Just from the very beginning? Yeah, let's go with the beginning. So off in the beginning, we have Joel writing a letter to what appears to be one of his med school buddies or acquaintances. And he's writing about where he's at and how much he's enjoying, you know, Sicily and the quietness and the wilderness and how he's alone. And he also says in that letter to his friend, he says that he is in Methodist DeBakey in Houston. Okay, yeah. That's where his friend gonna... Mark is um, doing his uh, residency, or or that's where he lives now, maybe, right? That's where he was doing his residency. Yeah. I don't know if you know this about uh, Methodist DeBakey, but that was named after Michael DeBakey. Yeah, shout out to Michael DeBakey. He is a huge figure in the medical community. He helped develop the Mobile Army Surgical Hospitals. MASH. MASH. Yes. <laughs> Alan Alda. He did coronary <laughs> bypass operations, carotid. I don't know if I'm saying this right. Carotid? It's a medical drug. Um, carotid. And endoterectomy. Endoterectomy. Okay. Carotid and Okay. <laughs> he did something very important involving the heart. And he Open did ventricular surgery, assist right? devices. Yes, that, that too. too. He helped revolutionize all of that. So incredibly important figure. And he actually died in Methodist. Debakey Hospital. Oh, wow. What did he die of? Do you know? He died of natural causes. Natural causes? He died cause? at 99. Oh, okay. So like old age. He's just incredibly old. <laughs> yeah. The wind, honestly, could have done it to him <laughs> at that age. <laughs> Poor Michael Debakey. Uh, okay. So yeah. So Joel's writing this letter to his buddy, Mark, from med school. Uh, a couple of things I wrote down in my notes. He mentions the all-nighters that they spent blitzed on Matusse. Uh, I had no idea what that was. Matus is a type of wine. According to Wikipedia, it's a medium-sweet frizzante rosé wine produced in Portugal. So I don't know if this was like a cheap wine or if it was a very fancy type of wine, but uh, they were drinking it back in med school <laughs> in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, that seems like exactly like something you would get blitzed on. Like off of context clues, I had guessed that it was wine and not beer. Yeah. Because he's been established, you know, he's not necessarily a wine snob, but he is, you know, a wine snob in so much as doctors just try to impress other doctors with wine. So he had to start also, somewhere. it's good for your heart. <laughs> I guess so. In moderation. <laughs> he had to start somewhere and he started with uh, Matus, I guess. But I really like this opening, you know. Obviously, as you're watching it, it's pretty clear that Joel is... Uh, in a way, in a way, sort of lying. You know, he's saying how amazing it is to be in Alaska. When every episode leading up to this, Joel is like pretty upset with uh, with his lifestyle. In the whole first season, he's trying to escape um, Alaska. You know, for the most part. I was wondering as I watched him write this: is is he really? Does he really intend for the letter to reach Mark? Because we know from you know sort of the setup that. He's writing to an address that Mark's mom gave Joel's mom whenever Mark was doing his residency in Houston. So there's no reason to believe that he's got the same address. Also, you know, this kind of feels more like a journal entry or like therapy or something. You know, Joel's trying to cope with uh, this isolation. Oh, I didn't think about that. For some reason, I took it at face value that he was actually sending it to Mark. I, I, didn't, 
I didn't yeah. think about it being a therapeutic device. Well, you, you know, perhaps he is going to send it to Mark, but I thought just because the way it's characterized in the writing is he's kind of outright lying about like, oh, it's so wonderful. Um, I, I think I have a bite for it. One sec. You probably heard I'm working off my tuition in the wilds of Alaska. And contrary to what you might think, I love it. I mean, life here is so elemental, so real. Without the interference of civilization, you can really experience things. Things like silence. Yeah, silence and its purity and darkness. Yeah, silence and darkness. Right now, right outside my window, all I can see is a black void. Endless darkness. It's, well, it's totally exhilarating. Yeah, he describes it as endless darkness, a black void. And I think uh, at the very end of the letter, he says, I'm very, very, very happy to be here. You know, he's just kind of a little hyperbolic about it. Agreed. Yeah, definitely (laughs) trying to lie to himself. But at the end of this, he does hear something, like some sort of sound or voice I didn't really pick up on it, actually. Not until the next scene where they were setting up dialogue that I understood what was going on. Uh, initially, when I watched the scene, I just thought he was just freaking out. Yeah, he pulls like a golf club up after he finishes with that sort of internal monologue. You know, he looks around and pulls his golf club up as if to like sort of draw his weapon to defend himself. <laughs> Home defense system. <laughs> um, but yeah, so his whole little plot line as it's set out here is he is hearing what he thinks is a voice and what's the next scene with him is he approach Marilyn about it right hey Marilyn I heard something very peculiar is is there some kind of um, winter phenomenon maybe due to air density or or lack of humidity where uh, sound is distorted particularly at night no you know, it's like when you're in a canyon and, and sounds that are generated miles away seem like they're, they're coming from very near. No. See, my, my point is I heard this sound twice, in fact. And, and if, I, if I'd have to guess what it is, I, I'd say it was, a, it was a voice. What? Nothing. And before she can give her answer, uh, in comes Eve. That's right. Yeah, Eve enters the episode pretty early on. You know, Joel immediately gets on the defensive because this is a woman that is like beat him over the head with a cast iron pan and shackled <laughs> him, you know. So, he, he's, yeah, you know, he's he's uh, he does not have a great reaction to seeing her. I was so excited. It was her. Yeah. You're a big fan of uh, Val- Valerie Mahaffey. That's yeah, her, right? Valerie yeah. Mahaffey. Uh, I think she's a wonderful actress. I think she hit it out of the park in this episode as well. <laughs> yeah there's something about the way she moves her body uh-huh like it's rigid and uptight and it's obviously like an actress decision to do that uh-huh. um she delivers line in a very precise manner like a surgical manner whenever she speaks with like a little lilt at the end yeah uh, i think it's absolutely lovely man yeah i think we've talked about this before she's not my favorite character by far but maybe she's growing on me i'll we'll see we're gonna we're gonna get to the episode pretty soon when uh she, she wins an Emmy in this season, so. Nice. But so she's come here because she is in need of urgent um, medical attention. And uh, Joel obviously believes nothing is wrong with her because uh, she has been established as, you know, a hypochondriac. But he agrees to give her a complete physical if she promises never to come back. So they strike this deal. Part of the bargaining, uh, Joel says, that he'll even do an EEG. I looked it up, and an EEG is an electroencephalogram. So it's like recording the electrical brain activity. 
I don't think he can do that in his office in Sicily, Alaska. <laughs> so what is he even talking about? Maybe he has like, I don't know, some sort of workshop back there that can support it. Like we've, we've never, never actually taken it. a look at like all his medical supplies. I don't know. Maybe it's just like a little kit. You know, I've looked at a picture of it and it's like, uh, it looks pretty intense. You sort of put it on your head and you, yeah, it has a bunch of those little, what would you call those nodes, I guess, you know, to so like a clockwork orange situation. <laughs> very much. <laughs> Real fast, though, this is not Eve, but before she gets in there, sort of at the beginning of this scene, Marilyn asks Joel, um, she's going to renew his subscription for The New Yorker. And he says, yes, of course, you know, please renew that. And she says, um, okay, so for four years? And he said, no, hold on, hold on. Not four years. That's not the deal. It's three years, eight months, 22 days, and 15 hours. So... Correct me if I'm wrong. So he his contract from episode one was for four years to serve in Alaska, right? Mm-hmm. And we're in season three now. Uh, but he says three years, eight months, 22 days, and, and 15 hours. I guess that's how, how much longer he has to spend in Alaska. So that's only that means he's only been in Alaska for like three months. So does every season a month? This doesn't seem right, though, right? Because it seems like it's been a, a much longer time. Because we've seen, well, we've seen when season one was like summer, season two was um, kind of winter, lots of snow, and we're almost. It feels almost like spring. I don't know. Yeah. Hang on. Okay. It might still follow chronologically if you think about it. So we start off in the summer yeah. in season one. Keep in mind it's only seven episodes. Yeah. Season two is also about eight episodes, I believe. Yeah, that's correct. And combined is only half of season three in season three we finally get our first halloween episode so we might have just gotten to fall in season three and then it goes to christmas and then goes to new year's and now we're here in the winter so let's assume that summer in alaska is at the latest august or september Mm -hmm. okay three months after august or september yeah so that would put it at latest that three months past the summer, you know, technically the late summer of Alaska that we just said, that would put us at November or December, right? At, at the latest, maybe January. But what month is it supposed to be here now? I guess, has it not been New Year yet? No, I thought that was New Year's. I thought it was January right around now. Okay. I can sort of believe that. Because they're past Christmas. They're definitely past Christmas. Yeah, they're definitely past Christmas. It must be past New Year's. I think you're right. So we can guess from the release date that this episode was probably shot in uh, late February, you know, maybe early March, probably late February. So that's probably why it feels like we've already started losing some of the winter um, snow and stuff like that. But I guess if we're looking at the chronology, I think you're right. Okay. So let's just assume that it's only been three months. I feel like it's been longer, you know, but it's only been three months in the chronology of the show. Well, okay, so let's take a little bit of a deeper dive into this. The entire theme of this episode is that Joel looks like he's detached from the rest of the town. True. As Maggie says, he's always kept an arm out, keep them at arm's length. Yeah. So it looks like that once his time is up, he's just going to leave, skedaddle. And Maggie even says, like, if you had died, we'd probably just raise a toast to you, and then Maurice would go (laughs) buy a new doctor. In three to four months amount of time, that's not a whole lot of time to leave a lot of impact. I know that we've seen a lot of episodes where it seems like there's a whole lot of impact, but 
assuming that this is like a television show and lots of episodes are wiped out at the end and we just go back to the status <laughs> quo through the chronology of time of four months i can kind of see what they're going at saying like you know joel you've only been here for like four months you don't seem like you're really part of the town yeah that's okay this it definitely fits in with that whole theme of the show how he's he feels like an outsider and um, I would say if, if you know, you're in a town for three or four months, this is probably the point at which you got to level with yourself and decide, am I going to really settle down and like plant my roots or am I just going to be, you know, a hermit for the rest of uh, my sentence here? <laughs> okay. Well, so this develops with Joel, um, you know, settling down into the brick. He sits next to Ruthann. And, you know, he's basically like, let me ask you something. Do you, do you, do you hear this sound? Uh, I've got this weird sound happening. And, um, she, she hears him say like, it might've been an animal, maybe a voice. And, and that's what kind of perks up Ruthann and Halling even leans in. And I don't remember if it's Ruthann or Halling, but they, they're the ones to reveal this, this Jack character, this, um, poltergeist, this ghost. Yeah, so it looks like we have the second suicide in Sicily, Alaska, though this oh, one was right. done decades ago. Calling back to season one, episode four. Uh, no, 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 episode three, Soapy Sanderson. That was yeah. that was the suicide seems you're like, referencing? Seems like a common thing to do. Well, I, I, I yeah. shouldn't say common. But two like, out of, out of uh, this is the 32nd episode. So two out of 36 episodes <laughs> deal with suicide is what you're trying to say. <laughs> Maybe so, yeah. So from here, Joel confronts Maggie, uh, his landlord. And I really like this set that they're in. We're in what appears to be a large garage. If you remember two episodes ago, Maggie's house burned down. And in the last episode, we didn't really see Maggie at all. And in this episode, we don't really see Maggie's house or where she's staying. I'm assuming she's she's still staying at the brick, you know, sleeping on the pool table. But... Yeah, it's like I feel like they haven't really given that a lot of attention after they took her house away from her. Uh, she's they didn't really address it again, but um, I imagine we'll we'll figure something out soon. Anyway, this set is really cool. It's this huge garage. They've like got really big, high windows, and she seems to be working on um, a car. It's I'm pretty. It's her red truck because we see it later in uh, this episode. Um, I just really like this set. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, there's lots of new sets in this episode. That was the first one that caught my eye was this giant uh, garage that they're in. Mm-hmm. The second one is the basement of Ruth Ann's shop. Right, yeah, we've never seen that before. And it's a pretty cool, It's again, it's another really cool set. So, yeah, I I don't know what sprung them uh, to to just start building these sets. Maybe we'll see these locations again in the series, but... Definitely have never seen them before in, in the three seasons. Yeah. So Maggie goes into the mythology of Jack, the person that used to live in Joel's cabin. Yeah. And it turns out that he was a person that was about 30 years old. He was blonde. According to Joel's theories, he was very alike to him. Yeah. But he finds a lot of like similarities. Yeah. They like did the same things and everything. But he killed himself in that cabin. And you wrote like a very i mean honestly to me very scary suicide <laughs> note where he said alone alone yeah can i play the bite real fast yeah go for it flashman look i want information o'connell i want to know who he was and why he killed himself how should i know flashman it was over 40 years ago well, did he write a note he might have written written a note no well yes sort of what, is he, what, what do you mean sort of 
Well, it wasn't in a traditional sense. He crawled over to the wall and wrote alone, alone with his blood. Wait, I didn't pick this up on the first time. He wrote alone, alone with his own blood? <laughs> yeah. I think that's so hilarious that just that pivot, Maggie's like, um, no, there was no note. Well, yes, sort of. There was kind of a note. And it's like so humorous, but it's also so disturbing. And like you said, kind of terrifying. Um, yeah, that place is definitely haunted if you haven't figured it out yet. So we transition to the next scene where Joel's playing cards with Ed. I want to say it's gin rummy that they're playing. Yeah, I think, I, you know, I, I couldn't tell. It looked like, like a rummy game, and then Ed says uh, he got gin. So I assume. Yeah, that's what I assume too. And Joel asked Ed about the mythology of Jack. And Ed has some wise introspection about the whole situation. And it's that soundbite that we played at the beginning where he's asking him, why are you hearing Jack now. Yeah, he points out sort of a connection here that Joel hasn't really put together and we may, we maybe not have not put that together either as an audience, but we get the idea that the house is haunted and this episode isn't like a, a horror episode. This is where we get sort of that clear indication that there's some reasoning behind it and it's sort of a mystery that has to be solved and maybe a lesson to be learned. At this point or a little later in the episode, it's about like halfway through the episode when Joel starts to um, really investigate and draw these connections between himself and Jack. I also did just want to say a little bit of the set dressing in this scene when they're playing, you know, Jen Rummy. It's obvious that Joel is not really in the zone. He's he's kind of in his own thoughts. And Ed is falling asleep. Uh, apparently it's 1.30 a.m., so they've just been hanging out all night, um, which is pretty cool, but Ed needs to get home. Joel is drinking Anchor Steam beer, which we have. I don't think we've seen in the series before. That's like a San Francisco beer. So not typical for, you know, the, the Alaskan beers that they drink or like the Seattle beers. I just wanted to point out that uh, Joel's salad bowl is on the table. I think there's some popcorn in it. But do you remember that episode when Joel was like giving away all of his uh, worldly possessions to the tribe? Um, Ed took the took like the salad bowl, right? And so yeah. I guess he must have brought it back um, whenever they returned all of uh, his possessions. Nice. Getting that salad bowl back. Yeah. And it's funny because in that episode, what does he say? He's like, um, you could use it for chips and, and pretzels and things like that. And they're using it for popcorn. <laughs> yeah. So this is why I think it's a very Northern Exposureist episode because the plotline of Joel is not just this plotline. It's also involved with Valerie Mahaffey, Eve, oh, her yeah. scenes. And even Eve has her own scene. So it's kind of like a yeah. family tree situation where like one roots off into two and then two roots off into its own thing and it just keeps splitting and dividing like that. So we could follow Joel's plotline all the way to the end of solely him dealing with Jack we can deal with Joel dealing with Eve or we can just stay with Eve and go throughout what all her scenes are because she kind of has her own little segments. Yeah. They're not very long, but it's still just her. No, you're right. It's like we couldn't just be like, let's just follow Joel's plot line because he, he starts like different stories in motion, you know. Um, but let's, do you want to go through Eve and then come back to Jack or do you want to? Yeah, we can do that. Uh, we can go through Eve and then follow all the way through though. <laughs> this episode just has so many plot lines blending in it because barking in the background is Chris kind of like dropping in as a narrator. Yeah. He's never interacting with anybody. In but this I think episode. that's a, that's a separate one. We can kind of dissect that one separately, right? 
Right. You can dissect that one on, but it's still dealing with each of the individual plot lines that are happening. Yeah. And then you have Maurice in his whole plot line. Yeah. All right. So let's focus on Eve, Valerie Mahaffey, and Joel, and whatever uh, becomes of that. So Joel goes back into his office, and it turns out that Eve is his new secretary. Right, yeah. So as he's doing these tests, uh, as she's waiting for the results of the tests, she just decided to sort of hang out at his office. And because, you know, she wasn't doing anything better, I guess she started seeing patients or, you know, I guess accepting patients. How does that work? Yeah, it seems like she can run some early diagnostics on the patients because apparently she has a lot of experience being in hospitals and working at hospitals. She's been at both sides of the equation. So she looks at the patient and she deduces using uh, common factors in the patient that that he's suffering from X thing. Yeah. Some medical terminology that they had right there. And it even seems like Joel may even perhaps be impressed by it. But nonetheless, he still wants her to stay away from his patients. No, it's pretty interesting because at first Joel is obviously like, this is morally, ethically wrong. This is like, this is not how, you know, you can never see my patients. Like You will never do this again. But as Eve explains what she did, Joel listens, you know, because I guess it's helpful information and she did a pretty good job, I guess, uh, I don't know, diagnosing or gathering um, this information in a a very hospital-esque way. Um, So, you know, maybe he's impressed, maybe he's just like, okay, well, this is, thank you for doing that. You shouldn't have done it, but fine, like it works. You know, she, she seems to be pretty good at it, surprisingly. Yeah, I wish they would have... Uh, okay, I like Marilyn. Let me say that off the <laughs> at the top. I like Marilyn. But I thought it would have been so cool if they would have introduced her as the new secretary for him because it kind of works on like a buddy cop scenario right here. Like she is extremely... Uh, <laughs> she is an extreme hypochondriac. He's a doctor, so he has to deal with all that. Like I, I, I was... So, I was rooting for it. I knew it wasn't going to happen. I knew it wasn't going to happen. I don't know. So. I'll grant you this because I, I already said that I'm not a big fan of Eve. Uh, I would not have liked to have seen her become like the new secretary or anything. But I do think it would have been very interesting if they had to work together. You know, if something happened, um, some sort of uh, dire situation and Joel and Eve you know, Joel had to accept Eve's help. You know, maybe there's a lot of patients and they had to treat them all. And even though they're sort of enemies, they're working together now to save Sicily. That would have been kind of interesting, I guess. <laughs> so the next scene is a really small one where she's in Ruth Ann's store and it looks like she's trying to buy some new medicine because I believe she's suffering from like stomach cramps at this moment based on the products that she's shopping for. Right. Yeah, she has her own sort of experience with all these different uh, medicines. You know, she describes one as having a certain effect, almost almost as if it's like um, a sommelier who's, you know, noticing different notes of a wine. Uh, she's describing these medications, you know, like food or drink. <laughs> yeah, she knows like the best pairing with each of the medicine. <laughs> And one of the medicines that she singles out is Mylanta. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with well, that. It's an like old advertisement. product. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There used to be an old medicine that was used for stomach pains called Mylanta. And in the commercials, they would say, 
owe my Lanta whenever they yeah. had stomach pain and go reach for it. <laughs> it was also used in Full House a lot. Like whenever one of the female characters would notice a cute boy, they would say, oh, my Lanta wow. as well, as if to indicate that they had like butterflies in their stomachs that they needed to take my Lanta. That's crazy. Yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> Um, but the, so that scene actually is the one right before because she's in Ruth Ann's store and then Joel goes downstairs, right? Um, but we'll get to that later. Yeah. Right? But that that's the same, like it kind of it's sort of like the opening little couple seconds right before Joel comes in and um we'll return. But let's finish up with uh, Eve. Yeah, she kind of gives advice, unwarranted advice to all the townsfolk at the brick. Yeah, she's kind of alienates a lot of people. A lot of people feel weird because her advice is sort of just saying like, oh, you're probably going to die tomorrow. You know, like stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) Very, oh God, should we get into it? Yeah, what? Of today's climate? (laughs) Well, actually, this episode, I was going to say this episode is super fitting for today's climate because Joel is, um, feels very isolated in his cabin and if you haven't figured it out, we're recording this, I don't know when this episode is going to come out, probably in April, maybe, maybe late March. But Charles, you and I are in the midst of the, you know, the coronavirus pandemic. We're isolated ourselves. We're quarantined <laughs> and are different, communicating uh, virtually right now. So, or telecommunicating, I should say. Yeah. So the rest of the country seems to be on lockdown <laughs> right now. Reasonably yes, so. Yes. We should be quarantining ourselves. We should be behaving responsibly by not trying to spread the disease to, you know, our neighbors, to humans so it's very similar to what we're experiencing now like there's themes of isolation that are going on in the episode with joel that we are experiencing right now by self-quarantine and there's also themes of valerie mahaffey's character eve where she is freaking out that she possibly has like morphine syndrome and she's gonna (laughs) die in a few months uh very similar to now where we're believed like oh like maybe if we just step outside, we'll get the coronavirus. And yes, it is a very serious virus that is plaguing the entire earth. But there is a limit to it where how much we need to be fear-mongering and how much we need to be responsible and like yeah. what guidelines we need to follow right now. So yeah, very fitting that we're watching this episode in the midst of the pandemic. Yeah, I, never, I didn't think about comparing, you know, Eve's... Uh, that that sort of like element of panic uh, to today's climate. But um, yeah, the idea being you have to sort of manage caution. You be very careful about not spreading the coronavirus and manage your stress. You know, you don't want to overstress yourself and, you know, you don't want to be over panicked. Um, keep a level head. But that's what's happening in this scene, right? She's kind of like uh, very hyperbolic to everyone in the brick and no one wants to sit by her because it seems very morbid. You know, all of these uh, diagnoses that she's giving each person, she's like, what do you take for your thyroid? She says to uh, Hauling, you know. But <laughs> yeah. Um, so is it the next scene? Uh, Eve is pregnant, right? Yeah. So the next scene, Joel kind of sits her down and he has Marilyn actually go outside. He has her shut the door. Oh, yeah. And he says, like, you actually do have something. You weren't just panicking for no reason. You're pregnant. Yeah. And they have, like, a sort of a brief interaction where it almost seems like Eve is asking about, uh, you know, she wants Joel's advice for what she's going to do next. And it sort of seems like another one of those um, indirectly talking about abortion. There, There's an episode, I want to say in the 
What what season is it when Shelly thinks she's pregnant? It's uh it's the Napoleon episode, the body in question, when uh Shelly thinks she's pregnant and um you know, there's sort of a weird indirect reference to abortion, but they don't actually ever say abortion on the show. Um, anyway, I think it's funny in this scene because it seems like Eve is inching towards that kind of conversation, but she uh, asks Joel just about, can I drink milk or, or what What does she say? Yeah, I think the setup is saying like, oh, well, like we do a lot of exploring and traveling and we do all of these things and I just wasn't prepared for this. So can I still drink milk? Because I heard that milk causes your legs to cramp. And if I had to cramp, like I wouldn't be able to walk as much and like all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's, There's also, uh, I, okay, let's put on our okay. over analysis caps on right now. <laughs> Got it. There's a lot of milk seen in this episode. Oh, what are some other yeah. examples? So whenever Joel was talking with Maggie about being in Jack's cabin and Maggie kind of tells him that he's been keeping the town at arm's length. She ends the scene by grabbing a bottle of milk. Interesting. And whenever Joel is playing gin rummy with Ed, I believe Ed is drinking a glass of milk. Hmm. And I think that someone in the brick is drinking milk whenever Valerie Mahaffey is there diagnosing people. So maybe it's some sort of like mother's milk sort of motif. Like it's a, it's sort of a um, foreshadowing. Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good one. Actually, it wasn't like yeah. it's, <laughs> that's a really good. That's a good over analysis right there. <laughs> hey, that's what we're that, here that, for. That was just something that I noticed throughout the episode, even before this pregnancy was realized, because she couldn't drink alcohol if she was pregnant. So I kept right. seeing milk throughout the entire thing, and I kept wondering what that was about. Eve also says that her and Adam are fans of. Fendesecla bronze, which I had no idea what that meant. And it turns out that Fendesecla means end of the 19th century, but it could also mean the close of one era and the onset of another. <laughs> Whoa. I totally yeah. missed that. I think I just, I didn't take a lot of Eve notes because I think I, because <laughs> you think hate it's her. clear that I hate Eve. No. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know, but I'm glad that, um, that you're so fond of this character and this actress because we're getting sort of the, uh, you're covering my basis. That I'm yeah. just not paying attention. <laughs> I just thought it was a lovely word that I had never heard of before. Yeah, I've never heard of that. Say it again. Fendesecla. Fendesecla. And I think that could be used. Awesome. Uh, I think it could be used like metaphorically a lot of the time. It's like the close of one thing and the beginning of another. I, I didn't yeah. realize that there was a, such a poignant word for it. Interesting. Yeah, that's very cool. I like it. So Eve is pregnant. That's sort of the, well, I don't know exactly the end of her storyline, but I do know there is a scene where she sits him down and says, you're just not qualified to be my obstetrician. So I just think it's funny that she barges into his, you know, his office, begging him for his help, this urgent medical attention. And uh, she's kind of written him off now. She doesn't want it to have anything to do with him. Uh, but well, she does praise him by saying he's a yeah. fine internist. Like <laughs> internist, he does but, have skills, yeah. just not in this particular alley. And hey, this you know maybe it signals a change in Eve. You know she's she's going to change. Maybe she'll she'll adopt some new characteristics or just move in a different path. But I guess we'll we'll see. So that's basically sort of the ending result with Eve there in this episode. Should we go on back to Jack, the Jack storyline? No, let's save him for the end. Let's go into Maurice. Okay, yeah, and yeah. And then yeah. we can wrap it all up with a nice bow with Jack. Right, yeah, because Jack sort of, this that storyline sort of ends the episode proper. 
But uh, yeah, I really love, really love Maurice's, uh, his stuff in this episode. So let's get that. How does it start off? Yeah, it starts off with Ed trying to clean Maurice's car, which I think was named Cherry by Shelly. Oh, wait. Well, she says Cherry in this episode. I think she was just uh, giving an adjective. Is that the name? Cherry can be used as an adjective? Like um, like cool or clean, I guess. I don't know. Let me... I'm kind of... Wait, what? <laughs> like something is very cherry. Okay, I will say, I don't have any real backing for using cherry as an adjective, but I've always... I've always thought Cherry was like, oh, that's cool. That's like just a hip way of saying cool. But may, perhaps that's the name because what, what happens? Like Maurice says something and then Shelly's like, oh, Cherry, like talking about or talking to the Cadillac. Yeah. So I always assumed that she was addressing it by its name. But this is the only time that we've heard Cherry referencing the Cadillac, right? This would be establishing its name if it was its name. Yeah, this would be the first time in which we see Shelley giving it its proper name. I've just never <laughs> I don't heard know. of Cherry I don't think being used. Name, but <laughs> I've just never heard of anyone saying Cherry as a description of coolness. Why would you name your car Cherry? Okay, I don't know. It, <laughs> I see your argument, but... <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Well, maybe there's a third option. Yeah. Maybe it's made of cherry wood. Like, like what? Is there any pieces of wood on it? Uh, I don't know. I would assume the only, I mean, I'm not looking at the car now, but the only part that could be wood is maybe the paneling or something, but it didn't look like it had uh, wood paneling. And, and even then it's probably like faux wood if it was. Whatever. Let's get off of the cherry topic. <laughs> to finally settle the cherry debate, I can say we were both wrong. Cherry is probably not the name of Maurice's Cadillac, but it also probably doesn't mean cool. If you search cherry on dictionary.com and look for definitions of the word when used as an adjective, there is an entry that reads, slang, new or unused. Example, a three-year-old car in cherry condition. It is cool, though, you mentioned that Ed's washing Maurice's Cadillac. If you look in sort of the opening, uh, one of the Chris sermons in the beginning, um, you can see through his, you know, the plate glass of K-Bear, the radio station, you can see outside, there's a lot of stuff happening outside in Sicily. And you can see um, Ed is polishing, you know, washing Maurice's car even that early in the episode. And then when we come back to him later, he's still washing Maurice's Cadillac. And, you know, that's the scene when Maurice talks about he's expecting a visit from his old commanding officer. Oh, nice continuity. I didn't pick that up. Yeah, it's like a little, you know, it's it's a good... Um, Good job on the continuity, whoever was directing this episode or on set. You know, they're like, what's going to be happening in this opening scene? You know, they're setting sort of the foreshadowing of this scene to come. Yeah, so Maurice is trying to impress his commanding officer. And it's obvious from the get-go that he has a lot of respect for him. It was uh, not the one that he went to space with, but someone that he served in war with. And he has all of the world, like the moon for him. Yeah, it was his commanding officer from Korea. He was an aviator, a Marine. His name is Colonel McKern, Gordon McKern. And uh, Shelley doesn't really seem to care. Maurice starts to tell this big tale. And I feel like Shelley's like, she has like a lollipop or like a popsicle or a snow cone or something. Oh, she has a push pop. And yeah, yeah. She's just, she's just like, oh, cool. And then walks away. Like she really doesn't care. <laughs> but Maurice says something in this scene that's very important later. He says, the colonel never took anything from anybody. 
And that'll come up later because obviously the colonel asks something of Maurice later. Ah, I didn't catch that. Double meeting. Yeah, yeah. What's next? Uh, the colonel comes to Sicily and Maurice brings him into the brick. And as you were saying, like Maurice is over the moon for this guy. He really, Maurice really loves the colonel. And you got to realize that these guys are like super old friends. They bonded in really dire times. So it's kind of like he's a father figure, but almost much closer and, and further than that. And um, I don't know, it's really, that's really hard to put into words or even to put into images. But I think this scene in the brick, uh, when they're entering, Maurice asks Halling to turn the radio up. And there's an on-air dedication from Chris, you know, from Maurice to the Colonel, like a dedication. And I don't know, you know, it's, that means something to me. Yeah. He even places his orders for him. Like he knows exactly what he likes. Oh yeah. They get like some T-bones. It sounds really good. Like the, you know, sparing no expense. Right. And I think that scene does a great job of explaining like what you just said. Afterwards, they go fishing off of some rock beds from what I can tell. I'm not exactly too sure where they're at. Yeah. But they're fishing. And that's when Colonel McKern reveals his real reason for coming into Sicily and visiting Maurice. He needs someone to help invest into his... You know, I actually, I forgot what it was that he was investing in. I did too. But I think it doesn't even really matter because Maurice basically says, you know, if you say it's a good investment, I'm sure it is. You can tell Maurice does want to help uh, the colonel, but you can also tell that like something has clicked in Maurice and uh, some, yeah, just something's not right. Yeah. There's a lot of subtext in this scene. So to start it off, they're fishing. So Colonel McKern is fishing not only the fish but also maurice he's oh, trying right. to fish him for money yeah it's very right figurative there. meaning yeah and at the end of their dialogue whenever they finally get through that awkward moment and maurice acknowledges that he's going to give him the money colonel mckern says you know i think it's time for us to switch to row yeah time to us to fish something else which means it's time to go to a different conversation yeah 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 there's a lot of um uh, subtext and you know dual meanings in what they're saying I think it's pretty good. I think, and I also really like the Colonel McKern actor. I think there's some pretty cool scenes here. It's not like overstated at all, you know? Right. And it, for us as the audience at this moment, it's not entirely clear why Maurice is behaving in this manner. Like we have our own theories, yeah. but it isn't explicitly shown to us till later in, in the episode why he's so upset, which I kind of like. I think I, when I remembered this episode, I thought it was something to do with like, the colonel is um, embezzling money or doing something unethical with money. But then as you continue to watch the episode, it's clear that, you know, the colonel just is in kind of a tight spot. He's in a bad situation. Um, but that means so much. I guess we're going to get into it. So I don't want to go too far ahead. But on a later scene, we can see that Maurice is, is starting to lose some respect maybe for Colonel McKern. There's a scene where the colonel comes into Maurice's office. Uh, Maurice is going to write him the check. And the colonel sees like a photograph of uh, an old photograph of Maurice and some of his um, peers, I guess. Uh, and they're all in astronaut garb, I guess. I can't actually remember the photo, but I do remember Colonel McKern saying, you know, oh, look, it's, it's all you guys like, you know, when you're astronauts or something like that. You can tell that he's very proud of them, you know. 
But Maurice doesn't accept that praise in this scene. He sort of is not even listening. He's just writing the check. Right, exactly. And as he's writing the check, he asks him and he says, well, how much do you need? You need 60000 And the colonel says, well, we'll take any amount that you can give. And then Maurice curtly replies back, 60000 And yeah. it's like a power play right there where it shows that Maurice is simply just trying to get this transaction over. You can tell that McKern is uncomfortable, but still needs to get this done. Like he wants mm-hmm. the money. He's not trying to do it maliciously, and he kind of doesn't know why Maurice is reacting so negatively back toward him. Like he thought he would have been more delighted that he was going to be able to invest in something. They were going to be working together. You can see that he's too polite to ask up front. Yeah. Like, why are you behaving in this way? Which is why he's behaving more passively. And we'll get into it even further, but I think, at least from this scene, we can kind of tell that Maurice in the past was always used to like taking direct orders from this commanding officer. And this, from from your description just now, this is not really super direct. You know, uh, McKern says something like, he's like, you know, whatever you can do, you know, whatever whatever you're comfortable with. And, and that's just not, it just doesn't seem to be the right uh, relationship that Maurice and, and the colonel had before. What does happen next, I actually can't remember where they're going, but Maurice and the colonel are driving somewhere and there's a big wreck, right? We don't see it on screen, but we they're do see... To, they're trying to hunt for their dinner. Oh, right, right, right. They say it's like maybe go shoot some birds or something. Mm-hmm. They're going to go. Yeah. And uh, we see them like about to get ready to go. And then the next scene when we see them like the Cadillac is being towed away. It's all wrecked. I think we also see like the Colonel, he's standing next to the Cadillac and then there's a hard cut into Joel's office and Maurice seems a little bit beat up. We learned that Maurice drove off of the road and hit a tree. Apparently he was going 70 miles per hour, maybe 75. Uh, Both he and the Colonel are fine. Like there's no broken bones. There's no concussion, apparently. Yeah, so it's not entirely clear why this scene even happened. Even still, I'm a little bit confused by it. I'm not too sure if Maurice just lost control of the car because he just wasn't paying attention because he was so flabbergasted that the colonel asked him money or if Maurice did this maliciously and wanted to harm both of them because he thought like, oh, how dare you even do this? I'm going to inflict physical pain to you. I I, I don't think it's that one. I don't think it's that one. But even still, like the entirety of this scene is lost on me. I think um, my best guess, I think those are all options. Yeah, I don't think he, I don't think he maliciously intended to do it. But I think it, I think the purpose was to indicate that Maurice was, has bottled up emotions and those he wasn't, he was unable to sort of like let these feelings and thoughts out that he's trying to struggle with. And so that kind of clouded his mind. Cause you know, if you have, if you're going through stuff mentally, you're, you should not get behind a wheel. Like if you're very um, depressed or grieving, you know, you shouldn't get behind the wheel, things Ah. like that. So you know, he's not necessarily like grieving or depressed, but he's he's going through some stuff. Th- that's oh. how I understood it, I guess. Go Wait, ahead. hang on. Now that we're talking about, mm-hmm. I, I think I see something here for over analysis. So at the beginning of the episode, whenever we're being introduced to Maurice and Ed, Ed's cleaning the Cadillac mm. because Maurice wants that to be the first thing that the colonel sees and it impresses him by how clean it is and that it's a Cadillac. And yeah. at this particular scene, he crashes the Cadillac as if he just doesn't care about it anymore. Yeah, so that's, the Cadillac that's represents the colonel 
in that it was this beloved object from his past that's always served him. And now he's like, I don't care at all. I'm going to be reckless with it. I'm going to be uncaring. Yeah, it's like he almost doesn't believe in it anymore. He says something earlier on how um, they went to some dealership, maybe in Houston as well. They went to some dealership like in Texas and uh, all the astronauts got their pick of a car. Like he was going to go for... Uh, I don't even remember. He was going to go for something else, but the colonel said, you know, you're, you epitomize the American hero, like the American dream. You need to get an American car, a Cadillac. So it was the colonel who advised him to get the Cadillac as well. Oh. Um, so there's so many ties to the colonel and the Cadillac together. And I like what you said, like he's being reckless. He doesn't really uh, have that sort of same connection to the Cadillac anymore. And... After this episode, I guess, unless it gets repaired, like that thing looked pretty totaled, so. Yeah, it looks like it's finished. But we also learn in this scene what's really going on in Maurice's head. He tells Joel a story. Let me tell you something, Fleischman. In 51, we were sent out to hit a bridge near Tegu. Colonel McKern was the leader. A kid named Davis and I were his wingmen. Triple A was flying pretty hard that day. Davis got hit and went down. His ordnance fell short of the bridge. The colonel and I both hit it with a couple of thousand pound bombs, took it out. We knew we'd be decorated. When the colonel wrote the report, he said that Davis hit the bridge, not him. Davis's family got the Navy Cross. Colonel McKern's Navy Cross. Wow. So this shows that you know, the colonel was selfless. You know, he didn't want to be recognized as, as a hero. He really believed in his men. And he he seemed like such a strong person. And for some reason, Maurice sees that image as shattered now because the colonel asked him for money. Yeah, Maurice needed the colonel to be beyond human. He needed him to be an object for him that was living in a higher plane than the rest of us humans. Because if he didn't have that, then there was nothing to look forward to. There was no human being that you could strive to be. So yeah. that illusion is shattered whenever he asks him for money. And he even tells Joel, like, don't tell me that he's just human. He was my CO, my superior. I would have walked through fire for him. I would have gladly died for him. Yet he needed me. He needed me. Well, look, Maurice, people get tight every now and then. Now, don't tell me that he's only human. I've got all the humans I can use. Which is unfair. And, and like, I'm, you know, they go through it at the end of the episode, but we as audience members can immediately tell, like, no, that's not that's not a healthy way to digest this. Yeah, I, I do think, I understand where Maurice is coming from. Like, this was an example that, he wanted to live by. It's like someone, something that he wanted to attain himself, something he believed in. It's like what shaped him as a, as a person. And it's a good example to live by. That man was like a hero, you know, according to Maurice at least. But um, you're right, Charles. This, this is not like a healthy relationship. Obviously, like you can't just hang out with the colonel um, if you're just going to be idolizing him all the time. And, you know, for better or for worse, I think this is going to signify like a really strong progression in their relationship, Maurice and the Colonel, you know, cause now he's not just some sort of hero that's always up on a pedestal. They can see each other as real human beings. You know, I know Maurice says he doesn't want that, but you know, he's got to snap out of it. Maybe I don't, 
I don't know. He he also delivers that line with such conviction. It's a it's like a really great performance by Maurice. Yeah, I agree. And I really like the ending scene of this. Uh, well, the ending scene of this entire plot line. Definitely. He's seeing off the colonel. He's getting um what appears to be like some sort of uh. Like, little, one of those little like water a, plane. Je- yeah, I, don't, I have no <laughs> idea for any of the terminology in this episode. But yeah, it's like one of those little planes. And uh, instead of like wheels, it's got little floaty things. What do you call that? Yeah, where you like take off from the water. Like, I, I don't know why he didn't just land in the airport, but maybe he's used to airy. Maybe he's used to aerial craft. So like he's comfortable <laughs> launching true, from this true. thing. Yeah, yeah. But he acknowledges that he's made this situation very awkward, the colonel. And he says... I don't guess you and I'll be seeing each other for a while. And there's something I want to clear up with you. The reason that I never became an astronaut wasn't because I turned them down. Nobody asked me. Take care, Minifield. You too, sir. I like that exchange of dialogue because it skips to middlemen. You think he's going to say, like, something that's directly causing the problem? But instead, he skips in front of that and says, like, let me get to the source of your problem and like why you idolize me. So like it begins with you even thinking that I could have been an astronaut. And I really like that. Yeah. And it's a really great resolution for this plot line because if you really track this plot line, it goes in so many different surprising twists and turns. When Maurice's idol asks him for money, you know, when Maurice crashes this car and reveals the story of bombing the bridge. And in this final moment, In this moment, you can really see that Colonel McKern loves Maurice. You know, you're reminded of the scene when he's looking at the photograph of Maurice and all the other flyboys when they're astronauts. Colonel McKern is incredibly proud of Maurice. You know, of course, he was their leader, but he recognized probably a long, long time ago, you know, whenever he never made astronaut, that his students, you know, the the men serving beneath him had surpassed him. Like, they're more successful than he was after the military. And you might interpret that as maybe you should feel sad for Colonel McKern. Maybe that he's like a beggar, that he's poor, he's like asking for money. He's not the hero he once was. But I don't think you need to feel sad because he, I think he really does have such a strong affection and pride in Maurice. Maybe this is sort of more of a father-son relationship than we gave it credit for. Yeah, exactly. Like, I I like that he knows that his students are not becoming the masters. Like, they're surpassing him. Something like the cycle continues. Whoever, like, Maurice will take on as a protege, that person would inevitably succeed you, which is what you want as a parent. Like, you want your child's life to be better than your life. Like, that's the ultimate goal. And that's probably what the commanding officer wanted, too. You know, like, him as a commanding officer, he wanted Davis to live past his own achievements. And that couldn't happen. The only way that could happen is he forged those, you know, he um, lied in the papers, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think really the, the disconnect here that was happening between the Colonel and Maurice is that the Colonel realized a long time ago, you know, that Maurice had surpassed him, but, but Maurice was still all these years viewed the colonel as his commanding officer, someone that was going to give him orders, tell him what to do, how to live. But Maurice has already grown up. He's been an astronaut. He's succeeded. You know, he doesn't need that anymore. And the colonel knows that. And uh, he's he's happy about it. But Maurice never figured that out way back in the day. So that's what's kind of causing that 
dissonance in their relationship. Okay, well, let's hop back to, you know, the last remaining for us plot lines are Joel and Jack, and I guess Chris, too. Those can kind of tie together. We talked about Joel in the basement of Ruth Ann's store. Let's go back there. Yeah, let's rewind. So Joel is wanting to see some old relics of the past uh, of the town's history. Specifically, he wants to know more about Jack. And Ruthann kind of drags him into the basement, which I did not know that store even had one. Right. Uh, deceptively larger <laughs> than you would think. I thought it was going to be like a Chekhov's plank situation where she said that, watch out for the third plank. It's like really uh-huh. wobbly. And like, I didn't know why they had that line in there other than to foreshadow that Joel would trip on it. But yeah, no, it was just to show that the place it's just was old. set decoration. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, another just talking about Chekhov's items, uh, Chekhov's glove. If you remember the single fleece lined suede glove from like the first broadcast of um, Chris in the morning. Mm-hmm. Sorry to uh, <laughs> divert back to Chris. We'll get. We'll talk about that when we talk about Chris. I don't want to like start starting that plot line now because we're in the basement of Ruth Ann's store. What happens there? Yeah. So they get out this old box that is filled with his old relics or his old uh, possessions, and you know it's filled with I believe like like a Roger's thesaurus, like old photographs. Um, was there like a diary of sorts? Um, I don't know if there was a diary. I think there might've, yeah, I think cause there was like letters and maybe there was a diary. There was definitely writing, yeah, but there was like also a, pictures. Um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I was going to say like, maybe not like a diary, but like a journal of sorts. Yeah. There's definitely some writing there. There's like the glasses, right? Didn't the guy have glasses, like a smoking pipe mm-hmm. for sure. We learned that the guy, Jack, he, his name was John R. Larson. He was a geologist, unmarried, 30 years old, and he was he was up there prospecting for gold, but he was not very social. That's probably what we're talking about, right? The um the the journal entries, maybe the diary. He he was a lot more secluded than Joel was. You know, Joel has a road now, but he was kind of just in the middle of the forest, I guess. Yeah, Ruth Ann makes the point that Joel has a road. Uh yeah. he has a way to connect him to other people, whereas Jack doesn't he had to swim in a canoe up the river to be able to see civilization Uh, it was an effort for him to meet people uh which is why he was alone so much joel doesn't have to suffer through such hardships he can just walk down this paved road to meet people yeah so there are similarities you know joel is already starting to draw but um ruth ann you know sort of suggests that maybe Joel has some advantages, you know, here, you know, it, there, there are some similarities, but Joel, this doesn't mean that Joel's going to kill himself or <laughs> necessarily be haunted, but already in the scene, you can see Joel, um, he's fascinated. You know, he's looking at, uh, Jack's copy of the thesaurus, you know, and he says, Oh, there's notes in the margin. Like he, he's already starting to try to figure out who this person was, and later, back at Joel's cabin, he he's brought all of these, um, all of Jack's belongings back to the cabin, going through them, and he's really sort of like crafting this story. When I think Maggie comes to Joel's cabin, and she's brought an exorcist with her. I I didn't know he was an exorcist. I thought he was like I don't know why I thought this because this wasn't prevalent until the two thousands, but. You know those people that would go into allegedly haunted houses and they would like find ghosts there using their spectrometers? Yeah, yeah, like the ghost hunters, yeah. 
Yeah, I thought it was one of those. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, th- I think that's a pretty good guess because, you know, he I, I wrote down like sort of like a Ghostbuster, you know, but <laughs> I really like the look of this character, Emil, the, the exorcist, because he actually undergoes like three costume changes in this scene. Like he comes in with a sort of like a vinyl jacket, almost like hazmat style. That's what feels very Ghostbuster or, you know, Ghost Hunter. And then he takes that off and we see like a tweed suit, very like more academic style. And then he dons like a priest's garb. uh, And that's when he starts to talk more, you know, sort of like an exorcism or an exorcist. And uh, Joel has a conversation with the exorcist and he says, so what happens once you cast him out? You know, where does Jack go? And I think the response is, you know, suicide is a moral sin. And Joel points like down, he's like, is he going to go down there? You know, like to hell. And Joel is already starting to feel a little guilty for some reason. Yeah. Also, it's a lot of subtext of his own situation. Like Jack is him. So whenever Jack left, this is the way the townsfolk are going to treat him. They're just going to throw him down to hell. They're going to disregard him. <laughs> oh, yeah. Joel doesn't want to be that. felt that way. Yeah. He wants to be regarded as someone positive whenever he leaves, just like Jack. And he doesn't want to be yeah. thrown down there. So that's why he's kind of contesting this uh, treatment of Jack. I like, uh, he tries, basically, he says, he tries to call the whole thing off. I think Maggie leaves the room to gather some firewood, you know, as they're preparing for this exorcism. And it's just Joel and Emil, the, you know, the exorcist there. Joel starts to shoo him off. I like his his, uh, line. He says, the thought that in some way I could be party to someone's eternal torment, I, I have a hard time with that. So he's like shooing this exorcist out. And um, the scene doesn't end there. Uh, Maggie comes in with some wood and she's like, wait, where did he go? And Joel's just like, I don't know. I don't know. And that's that's when the scene ends. <laughs> but it continues into the next one with them because I think it straight follows them into the bar of the brick where Joel is discussing with Maggie about his current lifestyle, like what's happening over there. And that's where Maggie drops the bombshell to him that like, he doesn't have any friends yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> Even Holly kind of kicks in. He's like, you know, like you gotta keep people apart. Like I regard you as someone friendly, but I don't know if we are friends. Yeah. So this is kind of I I don't know if it's clicking in Joel's mind yet, but the audience should should know by now. Like this is what Jack is trying to tell Joel. You need to make friends. You can't just like be alone in your cabin the whole time. Because uh, look what happened to me, Jack. That that's the message that the that the dead person wants to bestow. Yeah, they also shared a similarity of learning new words every day. And there were three words that Joel used as an example. Oh, he said yeah. exorious, floromancy, and asketchuan. I believe is how you pronounce it. Exorious means excessive fondness for one's wife. Floromancy had a little bit of difficulty looking up because it isn't an official word. But from what I could tell, it means divination with plants. Hmm. And Askechuan means a shield or emblem with the coat of arms. Interesting. I wonder if those, maybe those are just really um, $10 words. Is that, is that what you call them or no? <laughs> I like really that. Like, yeah. Okay. I like $10 words. I would call it like a 36 ACT word. That's what it is. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> but I like $10 words. They're very big words. Um, so I don't know if there's any meaning behind that um, that trio of words. That's what I was trying to trying to analyze. But no, they're they're definitely big words. 
So throughout all of this, right before we get to the final scene, Chris kind of peppers in throughout these scenes and giving right. his own intakes, his philosophical musings about the situations. So yeah, maybe we maybe we kick up with Chris a little bit because it's just like short little bits, but he does start out in the beginning across from a building that's going to be demolished. And um, I do just want to say, yeah, the whole Chekhov's glove thing is before he even acknowledges the building, uh, he's making a, I think it's a weather report first, maybe a traffic report. He calls out that someone's missing a single glove. I thought that was going to come up again later because it's, it's just one glove. But no, that's that's the whole um, Chekhov's, I don't know. It just never returns. I guess maybe if we dig deep for it, we can find it returning metaphorically. So the name of the episode is called Lost and Found. And you oh. would think that one of the gloves would return back, like it would be found. But it never does. Dang. But I guess the glove relates to Joel. Like That's one of the gloves so yeah. belongs to Jack and then the other one is like belonging to Joel and he needs to get the glove back. Something like that? No, yeah. There's definitely a lot. That's totally in that sort of motif or into the the theme of the title. You know, it's like invoking the title, Lost and Found. So Chris looks at the newspaper. It's the uh, Sicily World and, oh, sorry, Sicily News and World Telegram newspaper. I always get that. That's such a long name for a newspaper. But uh, there's a really cool rack focus because he pulls up the newspaper and there's the headline that reads, Mel's dealt a final blow. And then when he puts down the newspaper, the camera focuses on a building outside the window across the street. And it's, uh, you know, Mel's. Then there are some construction workers. It looks like they're going to start, uh, as we hear from Chris, they're going to start taking it apart. I just want to say, I don't think we often get to see out of K-Bear from Chris's perspective. But I never knew that that building was there, right? You know, we never see that side of the street. Yeah. I think the, I think the only time we've seen it is uh, whenever he looks out the window to look at uh, the op- optometrist mobile. Do you remember that episode in this mm-hmm. season? Uh, only you, whenever the, the optometrist comes to town. She's right outside of his uh, window. But um, I went back. That shot looks vastly different from this shot. So, you know, I I wonder if there's really a continuity with whatever's happening across the street from Chris or if they just uh, reinvent it whenever they they need to, you know, on the show. Mm, Probably that, (laughs) I would imagine. (laughs) But the next scene that we see with Chris is that he has one of the bricks, presumably from the wreckage of the building. Yeah, the place that shut down, the the mouse, yeah. And he's kind of imbuing the brick with special powers. So in this particular musing, he's trying to say that it's not necessarily the number of buildings that constitute a city. It's what the building stood for and what it did during its time. And that's what makes it like the spirit of Mel's still lives within the town of Sicily. So just like humans, buildings have a lifespan themselves and they will also disappear. You know, we have a limited lifespan. The building is a limited lifespan. And the brick that makes up the buildings you know, now that it's gone and it's descended down to just a single piece of brick, it doesn't necessarily mean that the memory of the place is gone. It's still yeah. there, uh, just like human beings that were used to be here. They're kind of still here. Yeah, there's a there's a strong analogy often between in this episode between Chris's on air, you know, monologues and what's happening with Joel because there's like sort of a connection of life and death and losing the you know the building is gone forever now. Uh, the memory, you know, as you said, of Jack. 
And then Chris also does start to go into some scenes where he talks about um, the importance of community, you know, like cities and what that means, you know, towns and tribes, what that means as far as uh, communal living with, um, with humans. And that sort of ties into Joel's, you know, living alone in his cabin. But is it the next scene when Chris is on air talking about uh, Oedipus Rex? His whole deal was that he was excommunicated. That, back in, in those times, excommunication, that was capital punishment for them, being kicked out of society, essentially. Yeah, I don't actually understand that scene fully. Like, what exactly Chris is trying to say in that? I think he's, like, starting to tie together um, this idea of buildings and this idea of um, he's starting to bring in the theme of uh, community, which is something that Joel's realizing that he's, like, lacking, you know? I, I just oh, feel like a lot okay. of what Chris is doing is is tying in with uh, with what Joel is going through. Yeah, it seems like that he's circling the line between life and death and what you did in the past and what you're going to be doing in the future. Because yeah. later on, he has amusing about how cities were built. And he said that it started off with people wanting to develop in a place and staying together and that created tribes. And from tribes, you created cities like Rome. And in those cities, you would have churches that were next to the graveyard. So the circle of the living would be encircled by the circle of death. They would always yeah. be together right there. So the bones of the living will never be too far away from the bones of the dead. Yeah. Chris also says that, you know, ritual, the idea of like religion and all that, Perhaps, you know, he offers the idea that perhaps it started because we wanted to do right by the dead. Like people died, so we had sort of a ritual burial, and that became why we all started coming together in religion and things like that. And that, that's sort of how he, he relates human death, you know, in the beginning to what brought, you know, perhaps cities later. Um, so, yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot going on with the Mel's being... Um, demolished with uh, Joel being haunted in his cabin. There's a lot of threads uh, connecting here. And it also threads back into the baby because uh, if we took this to be literal, like the building was an embodiment of Sicily and now it is gone. It's like it passed away, but just like the circle of life, there's a baby being born. Something new takes its place. Mm -hmm. So I think we can tie into Joel here. So Joel has taken to heart uh, this lesson that he's learned from Jack, perhaps, and that he's learned from Maggie and Holling, that it doesn't seem like he has any strong friends, so he's going to make a change to that. And it seems that he's invited everyone over for burgers, um, tabbouleh salad. He's got a keg of beer in the fridge, apparently. So everyone's at his cabin, and he's like cooking them burgers in a in a pan and serving everybody. And it's it's just a nice, fun gathering. I'm reminded of. Uh, when he was inducted into the tribe, you know, sort of like a potluck type situation. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's having a great time and they got this old camera that's apparently got like a self-timer attached to it and oh, yeah. hauling, <laughs> setting it up and they all gather up for the picture and they got to count the five till they say Canada and he barely just makes it in time and it takes a very lovely photo of the entire party though i'm assuming that's like not the entire town it's only like i don't know yeah. like 25 people in that shot i would guess like 20 to 30 yeah i like whenever he's posing for the picture i think it's when he's posing for the picture in the group photo 
he says something like, he's talking to Mag and he says like, it's kind of nice having a roommate. I thought that was kind of cute. <laughs> um, there's a couple other things in this scene. Uh, he tells Maggie, or I don't know if he tells Maggie, someone says uh, that the burger's very moist and he says breadcrumbs. That's what his grandma told him. That's like how how to make a good burger, apparently. I, I don't know if that's true, but that's hmm. Joel's recipe. Ritual passing down. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and uh, I also really love it in sort of like a character arc where you see a change um, come through this character, but you also get a little bit of a taste of like, the original character. What I'm, what I'm getting at is in this scene, Joel also says, Maggie's like, Oh, you're finally, you know, settling down. You, you like it here now. Uh, cause he's invited all these people over. He says, I think of it as a prison. It's a terrible, dreadful place, but I might meet some nice people. That doesn't really make sense to me, but it definitely makes sense to Joel's character. I think, you know, he's not, he's <laughs> trying not to let up. He's like, I still hate it here. He's trying to pretend like he still hates it here. Maybe he does, but uh, I think he really does want to make friends, uh, not just because he's afraid of this uh, ghost or you know, be committing suicide or something. He he really does want to um, to make friends. You know, he thinks he has friends and he wants to make those uh, strong, meaningful connections. I guess. So the episode ends with Chris giving his musings on the human condition, and he quotes from Einstein: "Strange is our situation here upon Earth." However, there's one thing that we do know. The man is here for the sake of other men. Above all, for those upon whose smile and well-being our own happiness depends. And also for the countless unknown souls with whose fate we are connected by a bond of sympathy. Good night, Cicely. Essentially, that boils down to saying that humans depend upon other humans to have a fulfilling life. Like, we're all in this together. Yeah, and what better way to... You know, close out the episode as Chris, you know, shuts down at K-Bear. He plays uh, this closing song. It's it's called Common Threads by Bobby McFerrin. You probably know Bobby McFerrin from the song uh, Don't Worry, Be Happy. Mm-hmm. He's, a, you know, the jazz vocalist. But I really do love this song. And uh, on top of the song, there's the photo. You know, the photo that was taken moments ago in the episode. Everyone's gathered at Joel's cabin smiling and uh except this time they're still they're frozen so we get like um the camera is in close-up kind of panning over all these different faces we sort of hear remnants of sound like laughter and people talking you know whenever it shows you know maggie's face we hear her laughter or something and the music is playing over it and it's just this um prolonged you know ending you know just with this outro music uh i don't know i thought it was pretty effective yeah, when I first saw it, I thought that I would have liked it more if they had just ended on the shot of the photograph instead of going in-depth into the photograph and showing each face and stuff because then I thought it was like, oh, that's like a little bit too much. But then I realized that every time they were showing each of the faces, there would be like little laughter or like lines of dialogue that came from them. And then that made me realize like, oh, they're trying to do like a theme of saying like, instead of the echoes of Jack, going through the cabin now those wow. the echoes of uh, joy and yeah. community going on and that's now replacing it so i was like oh okay i get what they're doing like i, I like this i never now. even thought about that yeah if you think of this as like a traditional horror movie he's like broken the curse you know he set jack's soul free you know because he brought a party <laughs> to jack's house that's yeah. all he wanted in life was to have a party and now he can uh, he can finally rest easy 
And speaking on the similarities between Jack and Joel, I like that Jack was a geologist and Joel was a doctor because a geologist implies that he studies the earth and it takes like millions of years for the earth to do substantial change, barring climate change. And <laughs> because of that, he's slow moving to connect with people. He didn't even have a road to go meet other individuals. Joel was a doctor. He meets people all the time. He's supposed to be helping them. So you can see the difference between the two individuals. Even though they have the same quirks, like learning new words every day, you can see the difference in their professions the profession, and how that, yeah. Yeah, how that comes into the, their um, core beings. Yeah. Uh, Charles, yeah, what's what's your favorite part of this episode? You're, you said this is one of your favorites. Um, really, all of it ties together really neatly. I, I like that there's a nice little bow being wrapped. I like that each of the plot lines kind of blended into each other. Like I used the example of a family tree of how it splits and then it splits even further from that so that the individual from that has his own plot line. Like Valerie Mahaffey's character of Eve kind of got her own thing, even though it relates to Joel, which relates to Jack, which relates to Maggie, yeah. which relates to like all of those things. I like that it's able to blend all of those different characters together. But I guess I just liked the episode because I felt that this is what the television show should be about. Like it's finally yeah. getting into the flavor or the originality of it without having to do some sort of gimmick or go into, I don't know, like uncharted territory. Like this seems to be yeah, the yeah. winning KFC formula. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It, like you said, it's not really reaching out for some specific gimmick or something flashy. Um, it's just like really settled into its formula and it's working well. And I do think after talking about, I really liked talking about this episode because, you know, you brought up a lot of things about how much this episode does, uh, thread together. Um, it's, it's got a lot of connections on a lot of levels and, and things that I didn't, I didn't even notice before kind of off topic, but here's one little bit of trivia I forgot to bring up whenever Joel is in the basement underneath uh, Ruth Ann's store, he sees a photo of the brick, like from way back in the day. And he's like, oh, it's the brick. And, and Ruth Ann says something like, oh yeah, that, that's the brick. But it was, um, before it was called the brick, it was called the bearded nail. And Joel says, oh, that's weird. Why, why was that? Why was it called the bearded nail? And um, I don't think there's a response to that. But I did find out on moosechick.com, there's a little trivia there. Apparently, the brick, uh, the location, was also featured in an old movie called The Runner Stumbles. It was a 1979 film. I guess not that old. But um, this film was shot in um, Roslyn, Washington. And uh, yes, of course, the, the brick was featured in this film. It was called The Bearded Nail in that film. Oh, nice. It's a good piece of trivia right there. It just occurs to me that maybe it's called the brick because, like Chris was saying, how a brick was part of the community, just like human beings were and the memories live on. Maybe this is a singular brick that builds up that quote-unquote house of Sicily. Yeah, I definitely think they kind of dropped the ball not using that like brick metaphor a little stronger. But um, I think, well, the brick is actually called the brick in real life. So I don't think they named it on the show, but um, they could have used that, you know. Somehow. Yeah, I think they should have, <laughs> man. That's such a easy alley-oop. Yeah. I think now is time for that special segment of the podcast where we invite someone who has never seen the show before to watch the episode, give us their feedback. So this episode, uh, we've got 
our friend Jeff. This is our friend Jeff from up in Canada. He's uh, an animator. You know, I met him through film school. But um, so he's a filmmaker, an animator, just working in all sorts of media. But I'd love to hear what he thinks about this, uh, this series. Let's see what he says. Hi, my name is Jeff, and I have a radical idea for this episode, Lost and Found. So it starts at the end for me. You know, there's this weird shot of this, you know, photo of everybody, and it's panning across, and it's very, you know, soothing and relaxing, and na 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 And it's like, it feels almost ethereal, this music. And I'm sitting there wondering, like, when are we going to see the ghost? You know, I'm just waiting for it. I'm just waiting for that shining ending. You know, it keeps going across and going across. No ghost. Where's the ghost? Where's the ghost? So then I think, the, the show ends. And I'm like, what, what the f***? You know, what, what happened to the ghost? And then I realize, Joel is the ghost. This is basically the sixth sense, this whole thing. You know, go, go back to his landlord. You know, she's like, oh, f I gotta get this ghost out of here. And she, like, calls an exorcist. And then he's like, whoa, whoa, you know, uh, maybe, you know, we, we just get, get rid of the exorcist. You know, we, we probably, yeah, we probably don't need him. You know, so he kicks out the exorcist. Who would do that? Uh, probably a ghost. It, it's very suspicious, you know, this guy Joel. You know, he, he just moves to this town, he lives alone, you know, he's got this remote cabin, you know, he doesn't want to talk to anybody, he's, he's kind of a loner. You know, it just seems very ghost-like. And uh, what, what's the deal? You know, all these people, they don't like him, you know? He, he goes around to these people, they get, you know, they have very, like, anti-Joel reactions. Everybody, you know, it, it just seems nobody likes him. Yes, hey, this guy, am I your friend? He's like, uh, 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 yeah, yeah, we're friends. That's the response you'd give to a ghost. You know, and he goes and he picks up the dead guy's belongings, you know. He starts reading the dead guy's books. You know, he, lo he says he looks like the dead guy, you know. Similar eye color, same age. So then I got to thinking about what's the motive of the ghost? Why is he still here? You know, what's the reason for that? Think about, okay, so then there's this lady, Eve, and then she's like, you know, hypochondriac, she's his uh, assistant or whatever, and, you know, I think there's some sexual tension here. You know, she says, when she comes in, she says she put him in chains, you know, and she says, give me a complete workup. And then, think about it, you know, what would a ghost want? He wants to carry on his legacy. So, what I think we got here is we got like a, you know, God, uh, baby Jesus situation going on. He came in, he slides in, ghost impregnates her. <laughs> Next thing you know, She's in his office saying, I don't know if I should keep it, you know? And, and he's like, ah, yes, I, I got to pretend like I don't want her to keep it. And then, you know, she says she's going to keep it. Bam, baby ghost. She's going to carry on that legacy. You know, he can, he can go away peacefully now. You know, so they have this party to commemorate baby ghost. And uh, I presume this is probably the last episode of the show. Joel's just going to slide away and uh, or maybe someone else will step into the lead role. I'm not really sure. Probably the moose, you know, this goes back to the intro. If you really think about it, maybe this whole town is ghosts. You know, when this moose is walking around, where's the people? Where, where's all the people? The ghost is walking around, there's nobody there. I think this story actually takes place way in the future. Everybody's dead. This moose is the only real inhabitant of this town. And it, it's, uh, it's like a moose town. You know, the moose kind of runs the place. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I'd watch that, though. You know, Moose Town. Okay, so that was Jeff's take on the episode. And I like what he has to say about The Sixth Sense. <laughs> yeah, that's totally a reading that 
Yeah, we totally missed that. It's such a strong reading, I think, until I will say I have one argument to make against his uh, <laughs> interpretation, but I agree that last sort of final ending of the episode, the shot uh, with the photograph, it is kind of creepy, you know, like if this was a horror episode um, or if it had more horror elements, I would kind of be, I kind of was freaked out when I was like watching these <laughs> frozen, cause it's like a frozen image. You know, these people are all frozen in time. The music is very, I liked the word ethereal. Um, that's definitely evoking that sort of sound. And, um, Jeff mentions like the shining, like the ending of the shining where you see Jack Nicholson sort of like frozen in that image. I don't know. Did it give you any creepy vibes or, or what? No, because I had context. Yeah. Um, okay. He didn't. So <laughs> I totally understand why he thought that way. <laughs> so Joel is the ghost. Uh, I think that that theory holds up a little bit. You know, he mentions he doesn't want the exorcist to be around. Obviously, we could say Joel has different reasons, but, you know, a ghost definitely would not want an exorcist to perform an exorcism. Like, we don't ever see that happen in the episode. So, you know, the sixth sense, Joel is dead, but doesn't realize that he's dead. He's trying to solve this mystery with all the clues in Ruthann's basement. That could work. It could almost work. I mean, that's what happened <laughs> to, uh, uh, kind of, it kind of happened to the Bob Hope show. That's the show where they ended it by him having to wake up and be like, oh, it was all a dream. What? Yeah, it was a terrible way to end the show. But like, oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, I think that happens in Scrubs as well. Like, I think the janitor is a manifestation of JD's uh, imagination. I'm pretty sure. Weird. Or like maybe like the show creator wanted it to be that way, but then it turned out like as the series progressed, it wasn't. But all I'm trying to say is that it wouldn't be like out of the realm of possibility if a television show did that. But yeah, he's definitely the first one of our guests to suggest that. Yeah, we've heard some pretty crazy theories like, you know, Maurice is just a, a figment of Chris's imagination or things like that. But uh, here's where the theory doesn't hold up for me. The, the whole uh, ghost baby um, idea that Jeff proposes. <laughs> um, yeah, I, well, yeah, that just doesn't seem to make any logical or story sense. <laughs> Very strange. Another interesting point is that the moose is walking around, you know, the moose in the opening credits, he's walking around a quote unquote ghost town. Like there's no one there. Yeah. So like, yeah. Maybe they're all dead. I don't know. There we go. They're living in uh purgatory, like lost. Yeah. Spoilers, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Do you think it's possible that uh, M. Night Shyamalan saw this episode and was later inspired to make The Sixth Sense? <laughs> like he was the first person to have that idea when he when he saw the episode. He was like, oh, that's it. That's my movie. Actually, I'm pretty sure that Sixth Sense was sued by somebody saying that it was really? his idea. Yeah, they were saying like, oh, I had the idea of like this person that was there, but it was actually all like a figment of his imagination. I find that kind of flimsy because I'm pretty sure that plot line's been done before to some extent. Right. Yeah. Probably, yeah. It's probably not the first time. And uh, even apart from that, like, you know, I think uh, M. Night Shyamalan gets a bad rap, but The Sixth Sense is like, wow, like it's a, you know, it's a twisty movie, but... You know, it was before he made a lot of other twisty movies like that. And just apart from the plot, like the direction and the cinematography, it's all pretty impressive. There's a comedian named Nate Bargatze that has a bit on The Sixth Sense. And he was saying okay. like when he had rewatched it and he said like when it came out, it was really fresh. No one knew about the ending. So 
and when it ended, they just thought that like his wife wasn't talking to him for like a year. Like that just made more <laughs> sense to them. Like the beginning of the movie even, sense. yeah, the beginning of the movie even shows them being shot. Like that's how obvious it is. He gets <laughs> shot with the gun and we're just like watching for two hours. So like, huh? All right. <laughs> yeah. It's like somehow more believable that, uh, his wife wouldn't, would ignore him for a whole year. You know, yeah. <laughs> he has that bad of a relationship. Um, that's pretty great. Uh, but yeah, no, it is pretty cool that, <laughs> It's kind of so obvious, but you don't realize it uh, until the end or unless you live in 2020 and it's already been spoiled like a million times. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, um, well, yeah. Thanks again, Jeff, for very inventive, you know, very deep dive, you know, something that we didn't necessarily pick up on in our analysis, but uh, very cool. Okay, so our next episode will be number 18 of season three. It's called... My mother, my sister. We're closing in on the end of season three, Charles. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, my mother, my sister. Oh, gosh. Um, I'm going to guess that one of the townsfolk's sister is actually his mother. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was an older sister, and he always thought it was an older sister, and it turns out, I was like, no, it was actually his mother. <laughs> well, maybe you're not too far off. I guess we'll have to wait till next week. Uh, to see Charles stay indoors. Um, you know, if you're listening, <laughs> be careful out there and don't spread the virus, please. Um, all right, Charles, we'll talk uh, probably virtually next week. All right. See you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Jeff for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening.